Hello and welcome to episode 69 of Paper View, where I review the papers and big headlines of the week and place investment headlines in the true context in the weekly podcast. Well, since the news is dominated by coronavirus, and that's all anyone's interested in news-wise, and since I said at the start of this year there would be no special episodes and two-parters this year, that was last year, what I've decided to do is kind of a regular episode where there's different subject areas covered, different articles, but they all relate to coronavirus. So it's kind of a half and half. And I'm going to start with this article in the Daily Mail. I'm going to be focusing very much on facts and figures of coronavirus in this episode. Each time I've covered coronavirus, it's been from a different angle. And the angle of this episode is facts and figures, although there will be other elements brought into the episode as well. So... This article is in the Daily Mail and it's called Coronavirus could already have infected half the British population and been spreading in the UK since January. Oxford University study claims as official death toll jumps record 87 in a day to 422 and confirmed cases leaked by 1,427. The coronavirus could have infected as much as half of the population of the United Kingdom, according to researchers at the University of Oxford, as the official death toll jumps to a record 87 in one day to 422 and confirmed cases leaked by 1,427. The new model from Oxford University suggests the virus was circulating in the UK by mid-January, around two weeks before the first reported case and a month before the first reported death. I've heard by January at the latest from another source. So that's interesting because I've heard people say in my own life and online that they had something like coronavirus around December time and Christmas time. And they reckon that might have been coronavirus and they've all recovered from it. And if that's true, then that means the number of people who've built up an immunity or more of an immunity to it is more than we're being told. The article continues. This means it could have had enough time to spread widely with many Britons acquiring immunity. There we go, just what I've just said. Sinetra Gupta, a professor of theoretical epidemiology who led the study, said testing was needed to assess the theory. We need immediately to begin large-scale serological surveys, antibody testing, to assess what stage of the epidemic we are in now, she said. I'll talk about the testing as we go through this episode. It comes after 87 more patients died overnight in England, including 21 at the one NHS trust in London. Scotland also announced two fatalities, while Wales and Northern Ireland confirmed another death. In contrast, 54 infected Brits died the day before. The UK's death toll has risen almost sixfold in the space of a week, with just 71 fatalities recorded last Tuesday. This was published on the 24th and updated on the 25th. Britain also saw record spike in cases today, with 1,427 more patients known to have caught the virus as the total number of infected Britons surpassed 8,000. But the true size of the outbreak is being hidden because of the government's controversial decision to only test patients in hospital. The true size of the outbreak is likely to be closer to the 400,000 mark. The number 400,000 keeps popping up all over the place. There's a great video called Coronavirus, a Worldwide Scam. This is all you need to see. And... I don't know what reason the uploader of the video had for calling it a scam, but I'll get on to what I think about it as we go through the episode. But in that video, which is why I bring it up, whatever people think of coronavirus, he goes through, the narrator of the video, just how many articles on, on different subjects, not just the number of people who got the virus and died from the virus, but 400, 4,000, 400,000, the number of articles and news stories there are with that figure in. New stories that relate to coronavirus but are about different subjects, much like 
this episode. It's it's just over half an hour long, and the number of times 400, 4,000, or 400,000 comes up, and what's the chances of that being by chance? Zero. The article continues. Police officers were today forced to break up barbecues being held in different parts of the UK as Brits flouted new draconian powers to disperse crowds in more than two to halt the spread of coronavirus. In shocking footage, Shepherds Bush officers were forced to use a megaphone to disperse large crowds of people sunbathing on the green, clearly not abiding by the rules of the lockdown set by the Prime Minister. From a police van, an officer said, You can't stay on the green. Can you all go home? Can you all go home, please? This is not a holiday. It's a lockdown, which means you don't just come here and sunbathe. Please just leave. Health Secretary Matt Hancock today launched a drive for a quarter of a million strong volunteer army to boost the NHS and stop it being swamped amid the coronavirus crisis. Just a point on that, Health Secretary. In government, they have what they call a cabinet reshuffle. What that means is, at least how it works in Britain anyway, what that means is, in England, that someone who was Health Secretary previously, like Matt Hancock is now, will go on to be Secretary or some other name basically meaning the same thing in relation to climate change for example or pollution or whatever they're just placed in that role they don't have to be an expert on it i don't know who had the idea for that but that's the way it works anyway the article continues he said matt hancock this is he wanted helpers to come forward to bolster local services as he also revealed that a new hospital the nhs nightingale is being created at the excel center in london the oxford university research offers a contrasting view on the disease to the study that is informing government policy it was carried out by experts at Imperial College London. They're using computer models, and it's these computer models that are driving government policy. They're the ones advising Boris Johnson. The equivalent in America is the Johns Hopkins University. Computer models are only as accurate as the information that's fed into the computer in the first place. Computer models relating to human-caused climate change and predicting the extent of climate change have been flawed. And Imperial College London has come up with climate change computer models. As they come up with flawed computer models for foot and mouth disease. And Neil Ferguson, Professor Neil Ferguson, who seems to be the guy who's central to the operation at Imperial College London in terms of coronavirus, made some ridiculous predictions relating to foot and mouth some years ago when that was happening in Britain. So not the most reliable source. Anyway, the article continues. But nobody in the media is asking who this team at Imperial College London are. Just like the mainstream media never questions people like Stephen Silverman of the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism and other elite Zionist groups operating to the benefit of Israel and seeking to silence anyone criticising Israel or exposing the massive elite Zionist presence in global society. I talk about that more in episode 10. The elite Zionist presence in society is apparent not least in politics. I've I've talked about that in episode 62, where I talk about Donald Trump, the history of Donald Trump, and how that relates to elite Zionism, and how he became the most Israel Zionist-controlled president in American history. I look at the Trump administration and the enormous elite Zionist presence of that administration, the Obama administration and the Clinton, Hillary Clinton election campaign. And it will be the same in other countries, Britain, Canada, Australia, Germany, etc. And then there's the cult which controls elite Zionism, which is fundamental to directing human society, which I talk about in an episode called All Roads Lead to Israel or episode 59, part 2.1. 
to give it its numerical total. Anyway, that's another story. The article continues. I am surprised that there has been such unqualified acceptance of the Imperial model, Professor Gupta told the Financial Times. The Imperial study has led to the government imposing the extraordinary shutdown, the article continues, on the basis that, without such rules, the disease could claim up to a quarter of a million lives. Professor Neil Ferguson of Imperial College London has massively reduced his original prediction. He said half a million could die from coronavirus, and then he now says 20,000. This guy is totally untrustworthy. His history shows that, and yet he's one of the central people influencing government policy, not least Boris Johnson. In other coronavirus developments, the article continues. Builders across the UK have said they feel angry and unprotected as they continued working on busy construction sites. By the way, something I've noticed, and I know someone who works Royal Mail, um, their workers have, through a union or the union, sought to protest, not literally protest, although it may, it may end up like that, not literally protest, of course, but protest against the way employees of Royal Mail are being treated. Britain was placed under new draconian measures which keep people indoors, including allowing outside exercise only once a day, social gatherings of more than two people banned, and non-essential travel prohibited with police-handed powers to slap offenders with fines. It's called a lockdown. Some people call it house arrest. Londoners continue to cram into packed tube carriages during this morning's rush hour, with union chiefs calling on Sadiq Khan to get a grip of the capital's public transport. The mayor of London came under fire for blaming commuters for flouting advice over non-essential travel. Former Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt demanded more NHS workers were tested for coronavirus, which has killed 335 and infected 6,650 in the UK. Supermarket websites crashed and delivery shops were booked solid for weeks as lockdown begun. Sports Direct insisted it was providing an essential service and tried to open its stores, Sports Direct, but was forced to U-turn under pressure from the government. The FTSE 100 opened up 4% as investors seemingly took confidence in the PM's measures. Health Secretary Matt Hancock said home is now the front line in the fight against coronavirus, as the U.S people to come together to reduce the number of people in the UK who will die from the spread of the infection. Well, come together in a figurative sense. But he issued a stark warning, saying stricter measures introduced by the Prime Minister on Monday were not advice but rules that must be followed. He told MPs in the Commons, the spread of coronavirus is rapidly accelerating across the world and in the UK. The actions we took yesterday are not actions that any UK government would want to take, but they're absolutely necessary. Our instruction is simple, stay at home. I do think, as I've alluded to already in this episode that Boris Johnson is being pushed into this, encouraged by not least Imperial College London and people like Professor Neil Ferguson. The crash of the economy does not benefit him as a Prime Minister, obviously, and it doesn't serve the Conservative Party. And I don't necessarily think that Boris Johnson is 100% on board with the actions he's taken for a while, if you look at his body language. But here we are in a lockdown in Britain. The article continues. He said people should only be leaving their home for four reasons. Shopping for essentials such as food and medicine, one form of exercise per day, medical need or to provide care to a vulnerable person, and travelling to and from work, but only where this is absolutely necessary and cannot be done from home. Mr Hancock said these measures are not advice, they are rules and will be enforced, including by the police, with fines starting at £30 up to unlimited fines for non-compliance. He continued, we are engaged in a great national effort to beat this virus as everybody now has it in their power to save lives and protect the NHS. Home is now the front line. In this national effort working together we can defeat this disease everyone has a part to play. His comments come as some trains on London's tube networks were crowded again this morning despite Boris Johnson placing the UK on a lockdown. The Prime Minister ordered people only to leave their homes for very limited purposes, ban public gatherings of more than two people 
unless you live with the people you're gathering with and order the closure of non-essential shops. But police chiefs warned of phone lines being inundated with calls last night with questions about what movements are still permitted while MPs also called for answers. Pictures on social media suggested that many people in the capital were continuing to use the underground to travel around, prompting a desperate plea from London Mayor Sadiq Khan. I cannot say this more strongly. You must stop all non-essential use of public transport now. Ignoring these rules means more lives lost. I'll say one thing on the lockdown, and that is these measures, I believe, we're waiting in the wings to be introduced anyway. The article continues. Senior police figures have warned that the stringent measures, similar to those already in place in Italy, will be challenging with forces across the UK having far fewer officers to call upon than authorities in Rome, with shortages of up to 20,000 officers. Mr Apter told the BBC, Today it's going to be really tough and what we have to get across to the public is that as far as policing is concerned, it is not business as usual. The normal things my colleagues' officers would normally go to, we need to decide what it is we cannot go to anymore. Because dealing with this partial lockdown, partial, is going to put incredible amounts of pressure on my colleagues and they are up for this. Mr Apter's warning came after former GMP Chief Constable Sir Peter Fahey contrasted the police numbers in Italy with those here. Sir Peter told BBC Breakfast, if you compare us to Italy, we have about half the number of police officers that they have. We don't have a paramilitary police force like the Carabinieri. Our police officers are already very stretched. I think the government needs to continue to close down businesses and other parts of operations to limit the places that people can be going, but absolutely at the same time reinforcing the message and clarifying as far as possible all those individual issues. We don't really want 43 separate police forces in England and Wales interpreting this in different ways and individual officers being faced with real dilemmas about whether to allow this or not to allow it. It will require a huge amount of public support, public acceptance and public compliance because if officers are going to be dispersed in groups, they are going to be asking about things like, is there a power of arrest? And that will then tie up more and more officers. So really, there is no way that this can be achieved through enforcement alone. It will have to be that the public hugely accept it and the government continues to issue clarification and reinforces the message. Police have also warned, the article continues, that they will have to ignore other crime if they are switched to focusing on coronavirus. London Mayor Sadiq Khan today said that if people continue to flout the rules, police should check ID of workers and use their powers to disperse crowds, which include issuing fines or even arresting those who should be in self-isolation. Police officers will get new powers to issue the fines and make such arrests when the coronavirus bill becomes law on Thursday. They will reportedly start at £30, but rise sharply to four figures if the public failed to heed orders to stay at home. Travellers in the capital could not stick to social distancing on their tube journey to work this morning, but hours after the Prime Minister warned all but essential workers to stay at home. Mr Khan demanded that employers enable their staff to work from home unless it's absolutely necessary, adding, ignoring these rules means more lives lost. Some of the people on the tube yesterday and today are not essential workers, I can tell you that. He added that many packed onto trains appear to be heading to building sites. He added that if people continue to flout the rules, please should check ID of workers and use their power to disperse grants, which include issuing fines or even arresting those who should be in self-isolation. Many people were nose to nose of people on the tube, trains and buses as well as platforms despite being told to be two metres apart to avoid catching coronavirus which has claimed 335 lives so far. As I say, facts and figures is the focus of this episode. The government has come under pressure to urgently, so I'll talk about where these figures come from and how they're generated. As we go through, the government has come under pressure to urgently clarify who it counts as a key worker after Britain's woke up in a state of confusion over who is permitted to leave home. Many construction workers are operating in environments where social distancing is impossible, leaving them fearful of spreading the deadly disease which has killed 335 and infected over 6,000. Labourers on lunch break at a building site in Battersea, London, where even pictures squeezed around canteen tables just inches from each other. Some said they felt compelled to come in for fear of losing their jobs, with one telling men online. 
It's mad that we have to carry on as normal while everyone at the office sits at home. As well as builders, non-essential delivery drivers were also on the roads today with High Street Change, John Lewis, H&M, Debenhams and Boo Avenue all maintaining normal services. Last night in his historic address to the nation, Boris Johnson ordered the public to stay at home unless travelling to work was absolutely necessary. It was wrapped into an emergency package of draconian measures to keep people indoors to stem the tide of coronavirus infection which threatens to overwhelm the NHS. But the wriggle room left by the Prime Minister over exactly who was allowed to travel was seized upon by many workers who continued to commute to their jobs this morning. Responding to claims that details of the lockdown were murky, Michael Gove, the Minister of the Cabinet Office, said it is the case that construction should continue on sites. People should obviously exercise sensitivity and common sense and follow social distancing measures, but construction sites carried out in the open air can continue. Many construction workers, the article continues, are operating in environments where social distancing is impossible, leaving them fearful of spreading the deadly disease which has killed 335 and infected over 6,000. Labourers on lunch break at a building site in Battersea, London were even pictured squeezed around canteen tables just inches from each other. He also confirmed that plumbers could continue to carry out emergency repair jobs so long as they observed the two-metre distancing policy. Yet images from the first day of lockdown show construction staff huddling together on sites, brazenly flouting social distancing guidelines. Matt Hancock today launched a drive for a 250,000-strong volunteer army to boost the NHS and stop it being swamped amid the coronavirus crisis. The health secretary said he wanted helpers to come forward to bolster local services as he announced that nearly 12,400 medical staff have returned to increased capacity in the face of the disease. Mr Hancock also revealed that a new temporary hospital, NHS Nightingale, at the Excel Centre in London will be open to the first patients next week. The news came as Mr Hancock held a press conference in Downing Street, although the questions were posed over video link as part of new government guidelines to stop the spread. Mr Hancock said his heart goes out to families of those who had died after it was announced that the UK's toll had jumped to 422 in the biggest daily rise yet. The Cabinet Minister said that the government's draconian new lockdown they are not requests, they are rules. Everyone has a responsibility to follow those rules and where possible stay at home. Unveiling the NHS volunteers drive, Mr Hancock said we are seeking a quarter of a million volunteers, people in good health, to help the NHS for shopping for delivery of medicines and to support those with children to protect their own health. He said 11,788 recently retired NHS staff have responded to the appeal from the government to return to the service. They included they included 2,660 doctors, more than 2,500 pharmacists and other staff, and 6,147 nurses. I paid tribute to each and every one of those who is returning to the NHS. It was our of need, Mr Hancock said. Some 5,500 final year medics and 18,700 final year student nurses were moved to the front line. Mr Hancock said the new makeshift hospital at the Excel Centre would be called the NHS Nightingale Hospital. He said it would have two wards and have a capacity of 4,000 people. 4,000. It is understood it will be up and running by Saturday, 4th of April. He said he will next week open a new hospital, a temporary hospital. The NHS Nightingale Hospital will comprise two wards each of 2,000 people. With the help of the military and with NHS clinicians, we will make sure we have the capacity we need so that everyone can get the support they need. But no matter how big we grow the NHS, unless we slow the spread of this virus, and as we have seen, those numbers will continue to rise, and that is why it is so important everyone follows the advice and stays at home. On that point, no matter how big we grow the NHS, of course, migration, which I talked about in the previous episode and other episodes, increases the number of people in the country, obviously. And it can mean that native people of any country are overlooked in favour of migrants because there's only so many hospital beds. So what will the effect of migration be in this context? The article continues. Mr Hancock also delivered a stinging rebuke to the London mayor saying the underground system should be running in full so essential workers do not have to be close together. The jibe came after another day of chaotic scenes in the capital where health hazard carriages were rammed despite the unprecedented shutdown of British society. 
but Mr. Carnage blamed commuters for flouting a ban on all non-essential travel and urged people to avoid rush hour to save lives, claiming he does not have enough staff to return services to normal. Mr. Hancock went on the attack as he was asked at a Downing Street press conference this evening why NHS staff and other key workers were being forced to put themselves at risk on crowded transport. He said, when it comes to the tube, the first and the best answer is that Transport for London should have the tube running in full so that the people travelling on the tube are spaced out and can be further apart, following the two-metre rule wherever possible. And there is no good reason in the information that I've seen that the current levels of tube provision should be as low as they are. We should have more tube trains running. But that would be a solution. The chairman of the Metropolitan Police Federation last night cast out on officers' ability to deal with Boris Johnson's lockdown, meaning the army may need to help enforce the strict new coronavirus measures. In his address to the nation, Mr Johnson said if people do not follow the new rules, the officers will have powers to enforce them, including through fines and dispersing gatherings. Police will be able to find people £30 if they ignore the rules, and these on-the-spot fines will be ramped up if there is widespread flouting, the government said. Ken Marsh, chairman of the Metropolitan Police Federation, said the lockdown plans would be very difficult and he was already seeing large amounts of sickness among officers across London. He told the BBC, I should quite rightly point out, we have not seen one of the 24,000 officers that we lost across the country. So it would be very, very challenging and very difficult for us with what's put in front of us. But we don't actually know what's being put in front of us yet. Other than we're going to be asked to disperse crowds, it's going to be a real, real challenge. And it's addressed to the nation. Mr Johnson said you'll be allowed to leave your home for the four very limited reasons. Shopping for basics as infrequently as possible. Exercise, such as running, walking or cycling once a day alone or those you live with. Travelling to or from work where it is impossible to work from home. To care for a vulnerable person or attend an urgent medical appointment. Mr Marsh told Sky News that he believed the army could be drafted should police numbers fall due to illness. He said the army are already in place on the outskirts of London and across the country and I don't doubt again for one minute that they will be called if needed. Because if we start losing large numbers in policing terms through isolation and actually having COVID-19, then they are going to step in and support us in some way. It could be tailored in quite quickly and I would say that everything is on the table. Prime Minister intervened with the new restrictions after pictures emerged this week showing people taking advantage of the warm weather on parks and beaches and flouting government guidelines on social distancing. John Aperture, National Chairman of the Police Federation of England Wales, said he could not imagine how officers would police the ban on gatherings of more than two people. Referring to Health Secretary Matt Hancock's earlier comments that police require people to follow the rule, he said, I would urge politicians to think before they make such bold statements. I just cannot rationally think how that would work. The Chief Constable of Northamptonshire Police tweeted, Please do not cripple our phone lines with inquiries as to what you can and cannot do during the conditions imposed by the Prime Minister this evening. As soon as we have further clarity on permitting movements, we will upload a specific page on our website. Humberside Police said, We have had many calls on our 101 line from people seeking answers, but at this stage we are not able to answer all your inquiries. This is obviously... As of the time this article was published, Martin Hewitt, chairman of the National Police Chiefs Council, had in measures to ensure social distancing have so far not had the necessary effect. These new measures are sensible based on scientific evidence from Imperial College London. These new measures are sensible based on scientific evidence and give people clarity on the exact steps they must take to stop the rapid transmission of this disease. The majority of people are already making real sacrifices to save lives and we urge everyone to follow the advice that is designed to keep us all safe. We are working with the government and other agencies to consider how these new rules can be most effectively enforced. And there's another section at the bottom of the article here. What is herd immunity? Herd immunity is a situation in which a population of people is protected 
are protected from a disease because so many of them are unaffected by it and it cannot spread. To cause an outbreak, a disease causing bacteria or virus must have a continuous supply of potential victims who are not immune to it. Immunity is when your body knows exactly how to fight off a certain type of infection because it has encountered it before, either by having the new illness in the past or through a vaccine. When a virus or bacteria enters the body, the immune system creates substances called antibodies, which are designed to destroy one specific type of bug. When these have been created once, some of them remain in the body, and the body also remembers how to make them again. This provides long-term protection or immunity against an illness. If nobody is immune to an illness, as was the case at the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak, it can spread like wildfire. However, if, for example, half of people have developed immunity from a past infection or a vaccine, there are only half as many people the illness can spread to. As more and more people become immune, the bug finds it harder and harder to spread until its pool of victims become so small it can no longer spread at all. That rhymes. <laughs> the threshold for herd immunity is different for various illnesses depending on how contagious they are. For measles, around 95% of people must be vaccinated to stop it spreading. For polio, which is less contagious, the threshold is 80-85% to according to the Oxford Vaccine Group. Just a point on that. I'll come back to this point about nobody's immune to coronavirus later from a different context but of course natural immunity is not going to take hold if people are in lockdown so what they'll say is or what they might say is the only solution is a vaccine because we don't have natural immunity because people are in lockdown so they don't have a chance to generate natural immunity where people get it and then become immune to it as i've said i'd be very wary of the vaccine i'll talk about vaccines in episode 44 part 2 and on the subject of questioning Here's an article on a website called offguardian.org. I don't think it's related in any way to The Guardian, but it's called Off Guardian. 12 experts questioning the coronavirus pandemic. Below is a list of 12 medical experts whose opinions on the coronavirus outbreak contradict the official narratives of the mainstream media and the memes so prevalent on social media. And because they're questioning it, people don't get a chance to hear what they're saying through the media. Why not have all points of view equally available and then people can decide for themselves what they think of it instead of just one which is what always happens the mainstream media claims to be balanced what they'll do is they'll have someone speaking the official narrative and someone questioning it occasionally when they'll have two people debating it on a news program or a current affairs program but the rest of the time is just the mainstream line there's no it's not balanced at all balance is all points of view being heard anyway this is what these 12 experts say and one thing I've noticed is when an expert is on the television, people will, or a scientist or whatever, people will more than likely believe what they say. If an expert is speaking through an alternative channel, contradicting the official line, people will most likely either not believe what they say or think it doesn't matter what they say, because if it did, they'd be on the television. And if those experts were saying, who were speaking against the official line, were on the television saying the same thing, then they do know what they're talking about, and then it does matter what they say. So the common denominator is, are they on the television or not? And that and that dictates whether people believe them or take them seriously or not. Not in every case, of course, but that's what I've observed over the years. Not just in relation to this, but in other subjects as well. The article says, Dr. Sukarit Bakhti is a specialist in microbiology. He was a professor at the Johannes Gutenberg University in Mainz and head of the Institute for Medical Microbiology and Hygiene and one of the most cited research scientists in German history. And he says this, 
We are afraid that 1 million infections with the new virus will lead to 30 deaths per day over the next 100 days, but we do not realise that 20, 30, 40, 100 patients positive for normal coronaviruses are already dying every day. The government's anti-COVID-19 measures are grotesque, absurd and very dangerous. The life expectancy of millions is being shortened. The horrifying impacts on the world economy threatens the existence of countless people. The consequences on medical care are profound. Already services to patients in need are reduced, operations cancelled, practices empty, hospital personnel dwindling. All this will impact profoundly on our whole society. I just want to pick up the point there about the economy before I read the rest of his quote. There's half a paragraph left. But he says the economy will be horrifyingly impacted. And what will be proposed if the economy is impacted to a massively significant extent which will make the crash of 2008 look like just pretend then what will be offered because it's always been the the agenda of the cult is a new economic system which will be totally controlled by the less than one percent and will dictate global finance for every country based on a world cashless currency for which there are obvious fundamental implications for freedom and this has been the plan all along And this quote concludes, all these measures are leading to self-destruction and collective suicide based on nothing but a spook, says Dr. Secret Bhakti. Wolfgang Vodag is a German physician specialising in pulmonology, politician and former chairman of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. In 2009, he called for an inquiry into alleged conflicts of interest around an EU response to the swine flu pandemic. That came and went. By the way, on the subject of vaccines, which was mentioned just now, in one of the articles, the patents for the swine flu vaccine were applied for a long time before we heard of swine flu. Anyway, he says, Wolfgang Vodar, politicians are being courted by scientists. Scientists who want to be important to get money for their institutions. Scientists who just swim along in the mainstream and want their part of it. And what is missing right now is a rational way of looking at things. We should be asking questions like, how did you find out this virus was dangerous? How was it before? Didn't we have the same thing last year? Is it even something new? That's missing. Scientists who just swim along in the mainstream and want their part of it. That's exactly what happens with climate change. If you speak in line with the official narrative of climate change, you get well funded and you get support for your projects. If you speak against it, then you're on your own, as scientists have confirmed. Dr. Joel Kettner, Professor of Community Health Sciences and Surgery at Manitoba University, former Chief Public Health Officer for Manitoba Province and Medical Director of the International Centre for Infectious Diseases. He says, I have never seen anything like this, anything anywhere near like this. I'm not talking about the pandemic because I've seen 30 of them, one every year. It is called influenza and other respiratory illness viruses. We don't always know what they are, but I've never seen this reaction and I'm trying to understand why. I worry about the message to the public, about the fear of coming into contact with people, being in the same space as people, shaking their hands, having meetings with people. I worry about many, many consequences related to that. In Hubei, in the province of Hubei, in Wuhan, where there has been the most cases and deaths by far, the actual number of cases reported is one per 1,000 people, and the actual rate of deaths reported is one per 20,000. So maybe that would help to put things into perspective. Dr. Joan Ioannidis, Professor of Medicine of Health Research and Policy and of Biomedical Data Science at Stanford University School of Medicine and a Professor of Statistics at Stanford University School of Humanities and Sciences. He is Director of the Stanford Prevention Research Centre and Co-Director of the Meta Research Innovation Centre at Stanford. He is also the Editor-in-Chief of the European Journal of Clinical Investigation. He was Chairman of the Department of Hygiene and Epidemiology, University of Ionina of School of Medicine, as well as Adjunct Professor at Tufts University School of Medicine. 
As a physician, scientist and author, he has made contributions to evidence-based medicine, epidemiology, data science and clinical research. In addition, he pioneered the field of meta-research. He has shown that much of the published research does not meet good scientific standards of evidence. He says, patients who have been tested for SARS-CoV-2 are disproportionately those with severe symptoms and bad outcomes. As most health systems have limited testing capacity, selection bias may even worsen in the near future. The one situation where an entire close population was tested was the Diamond Princess cruise ship and its quarantine passengers. The case fatality rate there was 1%, was 1% but this was a largely elderly population in which the death rate from COVID-19 is much higher. How bad is it being quarantined on a cruise ship? Anyway, he goes on to say, Could the COVID-19 case fatality rate be that low? No, some say, pointing to the high rate in elderly people. However, even some so-called mild or common cold type coronaviruses that have been known for decades can have case fatality rates as high as 8% when they infect elderly people in nursing homes. If we had not known about a new virus out there that had not checked individuals with PCR tests, the number of total deaths due to influenza-like illness would not seem unusual this year. But most you might have casually noted that flu this season seems to be a bit worse than average. A fiasco in the making. As the coronavirus pandemic takes hold, we are making decisions without reliable data. Dr. Yoram Alas is an Israeli physician, politician and former director general of the health ministry. He also worked as associate dean of the Tel Aviv University Medical School and during the 1980s presented the science-based television show Tatspit. And he says this, Italy is known for its enormous morbidity and respiratory problems, more than three times any other European country. Morbidity means the rate of disease in a population. In the US, about 40,000 people die in a regular flu season, and so far 40 to 50 people have died of the coronavirus, most of them in, most of them in a nursing home in Kirkland, Washington. In every country, more people die from regular flu compared with those who die from the coronavirus. There is a very good example that we all forget, the swine flu. In 2009, that was a virus that reached the world from Mexico, and until today, there was no vaccination against it. But what? At that time, there was no Facebook, or there maybe was, but it was still in its infancy. There was, but yeah, not like it is now. The coronavirus, in contrast, is a virus with public relations. Whoever thinks that government ends viruses is wrong. And that was an interview in Globes, March 22nd, 2020. The previous scientist's comments, Joan Ainidas, was published in an article. A fiasco in the making is the coronavirus pandemic takes hold. We're making decisions with that reliable data. Stat News, 17th of March, 2020. Dr. Pietro Vernazza is a Swiss physician specializing in infectious diseases at the Cantonal Hospital, St. Gallen, and professor of health policy. He says, we have reliable figures from Italy in a work by epidemiologist which has been published in the renowned science journal science which examined the spread in china this makes it clear that around 85 percent of all infections have occurred without anyone noticing the infection 90 percent of the deceased patients are verifiably over 70 years old 50 percent over 80 years in italy one in 10 people diagnosed die according to the findings of the science publication that is statistically one of every 1,000 people infected each individual case is tragic, but often similar to the flu season. It affects people who are at the end of their lives. If we close the schools, we will prevent the children from quickly becoming immune. We should better integrate the scientific facts into the political decisions. That was an interview in St. Gallo Tagblatt, published on the 22nd of March. Frank Ulrich Montgomery is German radiologist, former president of the German Medical Association and deputy chairman of the World Medical Association. He says, I'm not a fan of a lockdown. Anyone who imposes something like this must also say when and how to pick it up again. Since we have to assume that the virus will be with us for a long time, I wonder when we will return to normal. You can't keep schools and daycare centres closed until the end of the year because it will take at least that long until we have a vaccine. Italy has imposed a lockdown and has the opposite effect. They quickly reached their capacity limits but did not slow down the virus spread within the lockdown. That was an interview in General Anziga, 18th of March 2020. 
and Zegra spell A-N-Z-E-I-G-E-R. Professor Hendrik Streek is a German HIV researcher and epidemiologist and clinical trialist. He is Professor of Virology and the Director of the Institute of Virology and HIV Research at Bonn University. He says, The new pathogen is not that dangerous. It is even less dangerous than SARS-1. The special thing is that SARS-CoV-2 replicates in the upper throat area and is therefore much more infectious because the virus jumps from throat to throat, so to speak. But that is also an advantage because SARS-1 replicates in the deep lungs. It is not so infectious, but it definitely gets on the lungs, which makes it more dangerous. You also have to take into account that the SARS-CoV-2 deaths in Germany were exclusively old people. In Heinsberg, for example, a 78-year-old man with previous illnesses died of heart failure and that without SARS-2 lung involvement. Since he was infected, he naturally appears in the COVID-19 statistics, but the question is whether he would not have died anyway, even without SARS-2. Interview in Frankfurter Allgemeine, A-L-L-G-E-N-E, I-N-E, 16th of March. Dr. Yanis Roussel et al. A team of researchers from the Institute Hospitale Universitaire Mediterranean Infection Marseille and the Institute de Recherche pour de Assistance, Assistance Publique, Hôpital de Marseille, whoever said I can't do accents, conducting a peer-reviewed study on coronavirus mortality for the government of France under the Investments for the Future programme. They say, the problem of SARS-CoV-2 is probably overestimated as 2.6 million people die of respiratory infections each year compared with less than 4,000 deaths for SARS-CoV-2 at the time of writing. This study compared the mortality rate of SARS-CoV-2 in OECD countries, 1.3%, with the mortality rate of common coronaviruses identified in APHM patients, 0.8% from 1st of January 2013 to 2nd of March 2020. G-squared test was performed and the p-value was 0.11, not significant. In other words, common coronaviruses, that will be very relevant later on. It should be noted that systematic studies of other coronaviruses, but not yet for SARS-CoV-2, have found that the percentage of asymptomatic carriers, in other words, no symptoms, is equal to or even higher than the percentage of symptomatic patients. The same data for SARS-CoV-2 may soon be available, which will further reduce the relative risk associated with this specific pathology. SARS-CoV-2 fear versus data International Journal of Antimicrobial Agents, 19th of March. Dr. David Katz is an American physician and founding director of the Yale University Prevention Research Center. He says, I'm deeply concerned at the social, economic and public health consequences of this near total meltdown of normal life. Schools and businesses closed, gatherings banned, will be long lasting and calamitous, possibly graver than the direct toll of the virus itself. The stock market will bounce back in time, but many businesses never will. The unemployment, impoverishment and despair likely to result will be public health scourges of the very first order. Is our fight against coronavirus worse than the disease? New York Times, 20th of March, 2020. Michael T. Osterhen is Regents Professor and Director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. He says, Consider the effect of shutting down offices, schools, transportation systems, restaurants, hotels, stores, theatres, concert halls, sporting events and the other venues indefinitely in leaving all of their workers unemployed on the public dole. The likely result will be not just a depression but a complete economic breakdown with countless permanently lost jobs long before a vaccine is ready or natural immunity takes hold. The best alternative will probably entail letting those at low risk for serious disease continue to work, keep business and manufacturing operating and run society, while at the same time advising higher risk individuals to protect themselves through physical distancing and ramping up our healthcare capacity as aggressively as possible. With this battle plan, we could gradually build up immunity without destroying the financial structure on which our lives are based. Facing COVID-19 reality, a national lockdown is no cure. Washington Post, 21st of March, 2020. 
that's a good solution. Separate those high risk and those suffering and let others get on with their lives and allow the economy to and the financial part of society have some chance of not entirely collapsing or massively collapsing. Dr. Peter Goetzer is Professor of Clinical Research Design and Analysis at the University of Copenhagen, the founder of the Cochrane Medical Collaboration. He has written several books on corruption in the field of medicine and the power of big pharmaceutical companies. He says, Our main problem is that no one will ever get in trouble for measures that are too draconian. They will only get in trouble if they do too little. So our politicians and those working with public health do much more than they should do. No such draconian measures were applied during the 2009 influenza pandemic. And they obviously cannot be applied every winter, which is all year round. It always is winter somewhere. We cannot close down the whole world permanently. Should it turn out that the epidemic wanes before long, there will be a queue of people wanting to take credit for this. And we could be damn sure draconian measures will be applied again next time. But remember the joke about tigers. Why do you blow the horn? To keep the tigers away. But there are no tigers here. There, you see. Corona, an epidemic and mass panic blog post on Daily Medicine's 21st of March 2020. There you see, was basically saying, yeah, exactly, because you blew the horn. Implication. So, that is the opinion of 12 experts, which does not get aired in the mainstream media. And the next subject this week is symptoms of coronavirus. This is in the Daily Mail. More than 80% of the coronavirus patients only get mild symptoms like a cough and fever and most recover quickly from their infections, Chinese data reveals. Most people who catch coronavirus would only get mild symptoms and recover, recent data from China suggests. Researchers there found that more than 80% of people diagnosed with the disease sweeping the globe only developed fever, cough and some aches and pains. This was published on the 20th of March. It's cause for some optimism as deaths in the US have passed 200 and the case count creeps towards 15,000. In China, 87% of more than 80,000 people sickened have recovered from COVID-19 and some studies suggest people become low risk for the transmitting virus within just 10 days of starting to feel sick. But the Chinese Centers for Disease Control and Prevention team warns the high rate of people with only mild or no symptoms might mean that many simply are not getting diagnosed. Global health experts are cautiously hopeful that China, where COVID-19 first emerged, has passed the peak of its suffering from the pandemic. Nearly 81,000 people there have been infected with the coronavirus since the outbreak began there in December. But Thursday, China reported no new cases of the disease from local transmission, although officials there are now concerned that travellers coming into the country may spread the infection and new travellers. What do they mean by travellers? Migrants? Reaching this encouraging point has come at a great cost to the country of more than 1.4 billion people, more than 3,200 people have died and at the peak of the outbreak, 3,892 new infections were reported in a single day. New cases in the US, which has a fraction of China's population at some 330 million, yesterday reached 4,940 in a single 24-hour period, far outpacing the height of China's outbreak. But the death rate remains low, relatively speaking, and Chinese CDC's data published last month suggests that most people will not develop life-threatening illness. The researchers analysed data on 44,672 confirmed coronavirus patients. Of those, the vast majority, 87%, were between ages 30 and 79. 3% were over 80. 8% were in their 20s and children and teenagers accounted for 1% of cases each. Across all of those age groups, 2.3% died, 5% became critically ill, meaning their condition was life-threatening, and 14% became severely ill, meaning they developed pneumonia, a dangerous form of lung inflammation. But 81% only ever developed mild symptoms. In the previous episode, I talk about how and why 
coronavirus affects the lungs. Coronavirus is not to be dismissed as no worse than a cold or flu, but at its mildest, its symptoms are comparable. Mild infection starts normally with a fever, although it may take a couple of days to get fever, explained Dr. Maria van Kirkhove with the World Health Organization's Health Emergencies Program during a March 9th press briefing. The World Health Organization was created by the Rockefellers, part of the elite, and that would not have happened as a operation of the United Nations, which is was also created by the Rockefellers, unless there was a benefit to the elite's agenda, the cult's agenda. It's basically there to decide health policy and give health advice on behalf of the cult, the elite. That's basically what it's there to do. Anyway, the article continues. You will have some respiratory symptoms. You have some aches and pains. You have a dry cough. This is what the majority of individuals will have. The article continues. Celebrities like Tom Hanks and Kevin Durant have contracted the virus, but report feeling fairly well in spite of their infections. And nearly 90% of patients in China have recovered from the infection. Attempts to estimate how long the virus lasts in the body and how quickly people recover have returned mixed results. German scientists suggest that people were at low risk of transmitting the virus within just 10 days of falling ill. But a Chinese study found that those who were critically ill still had virus living in their respiratory tracts an average of 24 days after they were diagnosed and the infection persisted in one patient's body for 37 days. Still, this applies to the sickest patient, suggesting that the majority of patients who only have mild symptoms may get better much faster. Coronavirus is a respiratory infection, entering most likely through the nose and perhaps through the mouth and eyes as well. It attacks the upper respiratory tract, the nose, throat and cells that lie in the upper portion of the lungs first. Many people first feel the infection at the back of their throats. As it triggers a dry cough, then shortness of breath from the viruses attacks on their lungs. Fever and aches come on as the body's immune system mounts a defence against pathogen. I've talked about the significance of fever in the last episode. It's very helpful to the body, in fact. Some reports have suggested that an upset stomach, nausea and gastrointestinal symptoms may also be triggered by the infection and could be some of the earliest signs of it, though they're not the most common. Coronavirus turns dangerous as it moves deeper into the lungs. This progression turned the disease severe in 14% of cases in the Chinese CDC's report and critical in 5%. Lower respiratory infection can trigger pneumonia, which is marked by inflammation in the tiny air sacs responsible for the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide in the lungs. These may fill with fluid or pus. Some young people can recover from pneumonia on their own, but it can be life-threatening for older people and those with underlying conditions who account for the majority of severe and fatal cases of coronavirus. In the Chinese study, 2.3% of all cases turned fatal. Deaths were most common among people over 80, of whom 15% died. 8% of the fatalities were in people between 70 and 79. But younger people too should take the virus seriously, as the recent data found that 38% of cases in China were among young people. But what was their situation? One point to make, many have had the virus and not only survived, but had mild or no symptoms, especially young people. And of course, that massively lowers the death rate ratio. Just on the point of this article, more than 80% coronavirus patients, mild symptoms and immunity. This was a page that was on government's website. It's not there anymore. They changed it, but I took a screenshot of it, which I'll link to in the description of the episode. gov.uk forward slash guidance forward slash high hyphen consequence, hyphen infectious, hyphen disease, is hyphen HCID, hashed status, hyphen of, hyphen COVID, hyphen 19. And it said this, this is, this is very interesting. Status of COVID-19. This is an official government website page where experts and advisors, opinions and guidance is explained. And it says the status of COVID-19. As of 19 March 2020, COVID-19 is no longer considered to be a high-consequence infectious disease 
HCID in the UK. Yep, you heard that right the first time. The Four Nations Public Health HCID group made an interim recommendation in January 2020 to classify COVID-19's HCID. This was based on consideration of the UK HCID criteria about the virus and the disease with information available during the early stages of the outbreak. Now that more is known about COVID-19, the public health bodies in the UK have reviewed the most up-to-date information about COVID-19 against the UK HCID criteria. They have determined that several features have now changed. In particular, more information is available about mortality rates low overall and there is now greater clinical awareness and a specific and sensitive laboratory test the availability of which continues to increase the advisory committee on dangerous pathogens is also of the opinion that covid19 should no longer be classified as hcid the need to have a national coordinated response remains but this is being met by the government's covid19 response Cases of COVID-19 are no longer managed by HCID treatment centres only. All healthcare workers managing possible and confirmed cases should follow the updated National Infection and Prevention Guidance for COVID-19, which supersedes all previous IPC guidance for COVID-19. This guidance includes instructions about different personal protective equipment ensembles that are appropriate for different clinical scenarios. A few days later, Britain went into lockdown based on the fact that coronavirus was such a dangerous disease. And it was only several days after the lockdown, they changed what was on the page. So at the time of the lockdown, that page was still the most recent guidance saying that COVID-19 is no longer considered to be a high consequence infectious disease in the UK. So I'd like that to be explained. Of course, it won't be, but you have to ask the question, how could they be so sure that it was no longer a high consequence infectious disease? and then be so sure only a matter of days later that it was again asking questions is what we need to do question everything italy and coronavirus this is in the daily mail italians with coronavirus symptoms who refuse to isolate could face 21 years in prison for malicious murder as bars and shops are closed and last tourists leave before flights are banned Italians with coronavirus symptoms could face murder charges if they venture outside despite the quarantine and cause a patient's death. Suspected virus patients have been ordered to stay indoors with a penalty of €206, £182 over their heads, but they could face far graver charges if they infect someone on their travels. The most severe charge of malicious murder could lead to a prison sentence as long as 21 years, according to Italian media, while virus spreaders could still be charged with misconduct even if no one is killed. If I'm infected, I know I am, and I look for contact with other people regardless of the possibility of transmitting the infection. Then the crime of injury occurs, lawyer Franco Coppi told the Corriere della Sera newspaper. Italian media compared the possible charges to penalties for spreading HIV by deliberately having unprotected sex, a charge which led to one man being jailed for 24 years in one case in Rome in 2017. It came as Italy shut down all shops except for pharmacies and food stores as part of the country's unprecedented nationwide lockdown. Prime Minister Guiseppe Conte announced the latest wave of restrictions in a primetime address with bars, pubs and restaurants shut down for two weeks. Thank you to all Italians who make sacrifices. We are proving to be a great nation, Conte said in his nine-minute address to the nation. The quarantine is in place until at least April. Top health official Walter Ricciardi told Italian TV that his countrymen should prepare for a long war against the virus. Italian cities are becoming unrecognisable with the famous piazzas in Rome, Florence and Venice empty, except for sanitation workers spraying them with disinfectant. This is another benefit for the cult in terms of their agenda of the lockdowns. 
is culture being erased. A lot of cultural stuff, for example, like piazzas or Italian ice cream vendors and other small, small operations in other countries that are related to culture and are great for tourism, are going to be impacted by the lockdowns. And this is all part of erasing culture to replace it with a monoculture, which I explain in last week's episode in this segment about migration, because that's happening ultimately for the same reason. Conte tightened restrictions even further, with bars and restaurants ordered to close after previously being told they could stay open if they ensured a three-foot distance between guests. All shops will be closed except for basic necessities, such as pharmacies and food stores, said Conte. Bars, pubs, restaurants, hairdressers and canteen services will close. Home delivery is allowed. There was no need to rush to buy groceries, he said, after Italians responded to the announcement of the lockdown by cramming into supermarkets to stock up. Conte's announcement came hours after his government promised to spend up to 25 billion euros, 22 billion pounds, to fight a disease that has put hospitals and the economy under intense strain. The size of Rome's rescue was the same as the one the European Union announced for the entire 27-nation bloc. Italy's economy minister said half the money would be used immediately and the other half stowed away and tapped should the health crisis spiral out of control. Part of the government's cash injection is meant to help small businesses that are suffering the brunt of an implosion in the number of tourists who visit Italy's art-filled churches and beautiful hills. The government also put more meat on the bones of an emerging plan to let families temporarily suspend some mortgage and social tax payments. Galtieri said partial state guarantees were being discussed to help Italy's creaking bank survive a resulting cash crunch. The government responded to the coronavirus outbreak in February by quarantining 50,000 people in 11 villages that were worst affected in the north. That was followed with social distancing measures in Milan's Lombardy region and surrounding areas in which more than 15 million live and 40% of the nation's economic activity occurs. The Lombardy measures were extended to all Italy. Tourists have essentially disappeared and the Vatican St. Peter's Square is closed to all but those who want to enter the Basilica to pray under its soaring dome overlooking room. Pope Francis held an audience in his private library with his clerical translators sitting apart while St. Peter's Square stood empty with disappointed worshippers forced to watch his audience on a live stream. Some shoppers and shopkeepers have also taken the three foot safety distance to heart by carrying rulers and marking outlines where people should stand. The central streets of Rome remain deserted and buses that are usually crammed with commuters run almost empty. I can't even recognise Rome now, 30-year-old Muscoviti Ekaterina said while posing alone for a photo by the usually bustling Trevi fountain in the heart of Rome. A couple of things to point out there. A, this erasing of culture I mentioned, and also where it says about Pope Francis Disappointed worshippers have to watch his audience on a live stream. One of the other effects of the lockdown's benefits for the cult's agenda is erasing human-human interaction and replacing it with human-technology interaction, which, as I've said for a long time, pretty much since pay-per-view began, I think, that is the plan. Human-machine interaction, human-AI interaction, and I talk about that in episodes 10 and 11 in far more detail, where that is meant to conclude. And in episode 59, part 2.2, otherwise known as All Roads Lead to Israel, part 2. The article continues. Cathedrals posted handwritten notes cancelling mass, and cafes apologised to their regulars for having to turn them away. See, that's another point about this virus, is it's not just erasing culture but it's stopping people coming together that's another benefit for the culture agenda and divide and rule 
neighbours spying on neighbours and being encouraged to do so by authority and people one of the things you're going to see is young people blaming elderly people we had to do this to protect the old people we had to do that lockdown the economy and everything young people are going to blame more people and that is part of the agenda because elderly people are despite what authority will say a target of the cult they want rid of old people and old people were blamed for brexit they were blamed for old people were blamed for brexit we are seeing this all people were blamed for brexit they're being blamed for not doing enough and even younger than older people about climate change there is an agenda to divide and rule young from old there's an article here written by a researcher and alternative media researcher called john rapaport he's been around for a long time and he specializes in health health subjects this is on his blog nomorefakenews.com this is from march 24th here's what the cdc says about the test for the coronavirus i said i'd come back to the theme of testing positive for coronavirus earlier and this is it so the article says the cdc u.s centers for disease control and prevention admits the coronavirus test is flawed that's the overview and the takeaway as my readers know, I've described why the widespread diagnostic test for the coronavirus is insufficient, misleading, useless and deceptive. That test, used all over the world where it is available, is called the PCR. It diagnoses patients. Yes, you have the virus. No, you don't. A very alert reader sent me a link to the US Centers for Disease Control document about the test. The CDC establishes the guidelines for how the test should be done and what the results mean. Here is a CDC paragraph about results. I suggest you read it several times. Positive test results are indicative of active infection with 2019 NCOV COVID-19, but do not rule out bacterial infection or co-infection with other viruses. The agent detected may not be the definite cause of disease. Laboratories within the United States and its territories are required to report all positive results to the appropriate public health authorities. The article continues. I'm going to blow past the blatant contradiction in that CDC paragraph and cut to the chase. The key line in that paragraph is the agent detected the coronavirus may not be the definite cause of disease. <laughs> CDC. Yeah, you see, folks, the test could say the coronavirus is there in somebody's body, but the virus may not be causing disease. On one level, the CDC is admitting the test could turn up false positives. The test could say a patient has the coronavirus, but you really doesn't. This is not a footnote stuck at the bottom of a report. It's right there near the top of the section about the meaning of the test. On a deeper level, the CDC is saying straight out, if the test shows the coronavirus is present, that does not mean it's causing disease. But if you read that CDC quote again, you'll see the CDC is ordering labs to report a positive test result to public health agencies, where it will be counted as a coronavirus case come hello high water. Thank you, CDC, so very, very much. The next ship for Uranus leaves tomorrow. Pile on board and make the trip. You can run tests there to your heart's content. And he links in the article, and I will in the description of the episode, to the document he is talking about. All this information that the main, the mainstream media doesn't give people so they never see, so they don't even know it exists, and would dismiss the idea of its existence if someone told them, in many cases. Talking of facts and figures, the next article today is in Telegraph. Burning question, how accurate was science that led to lockdown? Previous work by a professor whose paper convinced government to act has been criticised by peers. The scientists used calculations about the potentially devastating impact of the coronavirus directly led to the countrywide lockdown has been criticised in the past for flawed research. 
Professor Neil Ferguson of the MRC Centre for Global Infectious Disease Analysis at Imperial College in London produced a paper predicting that Britain was on course to lose a quarter of a million people during the coronavirus epidemic unless stringent measures were taken. This is what I mentioned earlier. His research is said to have convinced Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister and his advisors to introduce the lockdown. This was what convinced Boris Johnson of the lockdown. This and this alone, this research so-called from Imperial College London, led by Professor Neil Ferguson. The article continues. However, it has now emerged that Professor Ferguson has been criticised in the past for making predictions based on allegedly faulty assumptions, which nevertheless shaped government strategies and impacted the UK economy. He was behind disputed research that sparked the mass culling of farm animals during the 2001 epidemic of foot and mouth disease, a crisis which cost the UK billions of pounds. And separately, he also predicted that up to 150,000 people could die from bovine spongiform encephalopathy, BSE or mad cow disease, and its equivalent in sheep if it made the leap to humans. To date, there have been fewer than 200 deaths from the human form of BSE and none resulted from sheep to human transmission. Mr. Ferguson's FMD research has been the focus of two highly critical academic papers which identified allegedly problematic assumptions in his mathematical modelling. The scientist has robustly defended his work, saying that he had worked with limited data and limited time so the models were not 100% right, but that the conclusions reached were valid. How does that work? Michael Thrustfield, Professor of Veterinary Epidemiology at Edinburgh University, who co-authored both of the critical reports, said that they have been intended as a cautionary tale about how mathematical models are sometimes used to predict the spread of disease. He described his sense of deja vu when he read Mr. Fergus's Imperial College paper on coronavirus, which was published in March. That paper, Impact of Non-Pharmaceutical Interventions to Reduce COVID-19 Mortality in Healthcare Demand, warned that if no action was taken to control the coronavirus, around 510,000 people in Britain would lose their lives. It also predicted that approximately 250,000 people could die if the government's conservative approach at the time was not changed. The research based on mathematical models was key in convincing the Prime Minister that suppression and subsequently lockdown was the only viable option to avoid huge loss of life and an NHS meltdown. And Ferguson has since revised his figure to 20,000. And how do we know even that's reliable? This week, a second paper authored by Mr. Ferguson and the Imperial team further predicted that 40 million people worldwide could die if the coronavirus outbreak was left unchecked. But scientists warned about the dangers in making sweeping political judgments based on mathematical modelling, which may be flawed. In the case of Professor Neil Ferguson, usually is flawed. In 2001, as foot and mouth disease broke out in parts of Britain, Professor Ferguson and his team at Imperial College produced predictive modelling, which was later criticised as not fit for purpose. At the time, however, it proved highly influential and helped to persuade Tony Blair's government to carry out a widespread preemptive culling, which ultimately led to the deaths of more than 6 million cattle, sheep and pigs. The cost of the economy was later estimated at £10 billion. This guy is now advising Boris Johnson's government on coronavirus. Sobering, isn't it? The model produced in 2001 by Professor Ferguson and his colleagues at Imperial suggested that the culling of animals should include not only those found to be infected with the virus, but also those on adjacent farms, even if there was no physical evidence of infection. <laughs> I mean, it, it, would, it is almost funny, except that it's real or was real, 
Extensive culling is sadly the only option for controlling the current British epidemic and it is essential that the control measures now in place be maintained as case numbers decline to ensure eradication, said the report published after the cold began. The strategy of mass slaughter known as contingent culling sparked revulsion in the British public and prompted analyses of the methodology which led to it. A 2011 paper, Destructive Tension, Mathematics versus Experience, the Progress and Control of the 2001 Foot and Mouth Epidemic in Great Britain, found that the government ordered the destruction of millions of animals because of severely flawed modelling. According to one of its authors, Dr Alex Donaldson, former head of the Purbright Laboratory, the Institute for Animal Health, Ferguson's models made a serious error by ignoring the species composition of farms and the fact that the disease spread faster between some species than others. The report stated the mathematical models were at best crude estimations that could not differentiate risk between farms and at worst inaccurate representations of the epidemiology of FMD. The article continues. An earlier report in 2006, Use and Abuse of Mathematical Models, an illustration from the 2001 foot and mouth epidemic in the United Kingdom, identified Professor Ferguson's modelling as having been the biggest driver of government policy, as it is now with coronavirus. The paper said that the models were not fit for the purpose of predicting the course of the epidemic and the effects of control measures. The models also remain unvalidated. Their use in predicting the effects of control strategies were therefore imprudent. Last night, Professor Thrustfield said, When we wrote those two review papers, we thought it would be a cautionary tale for the future of foot and mouth disease struck again. We didn't think it would be a cautionary tale for a new plague in the human population, but of course the cautionary tale is fully valid. This is deja vu. Professor Ferguson said of his modelling for FMD, a number of factors go into deciding policy, of which science, particularly modelling, is only one. It is ludicrous to say now that a model changed government policy. A number of factors did. We were doing modelling in real time as the other groups were in 2001. Certainly the models were not 100% right, certainly with limited data and limited time to do the work, but I think the broad conclusions reached were still valid. Of his work, on BSE, in which he predicted a human death toll of between 50 and 150,000. Professor Ferguson said, yes, the range is wide, but it did not actually lead to any change in government policy. Others have directly criticised the methodology employed by Ferguson and his team in their coronavirus study. John Ioannidis, Professor in Disease Prevention at Stanford University, said, the Imperial College study has been done by a highly competent team of modellers. However, some of the major assumptions and estimates that are built in the calculations seem to be substantially inflated. Professor Ferguson said anyone who thought the coronavirus was akin to seasonal flu was living in cloud cuckoo land. Well, that's rich coming from Ferguson based on what he said in the past in terms of understanding illness and situations. He defended the conclusions reached in terms of the overwhelming demand on healthcare systems imposed by this virus. He added, it is ludicrous, frankly, to suggest that the severity of this virus is comparable to seasonal flu, ludicrous and dangerous. People who were doing so have not analysed the data in any level of detail. Again, that's rich coming from him. But it's sobering, as I said just now, to think that this is the computer modelling of Professor Ferguson and his team at Imperial College London, which led to the lockdown when Boris Johnson was reluctant to lock down and was saying there's no need to before the Imperial study. And the next subject this week is Italy and coronavirus. This is in the Daily Mail. Italians with coronavirus symptoms who refused to isolate could face 21 years in prison for malicious murder as bars and shops are closed and last tourists leave before flights are banned. 
Italians with coronavirus symptoms could face murder charges if they venture outside despite the quarantine and cause a patient's death. Suspected virus patients have been ordered to stay indoors with a penalty of €206, Euros, £182, pounds, over their heads, but they could face far graver charges if they infect someone on their travels. The most severe charge of malicious murder could lead to a prison sentence as long as 21 years, according to Italian media, while virus spreaders could still be charged with malicious misconduct even if no one is killed. If I'm infected, I know I am, and I look for contact with other people regardless of the possibility of transmitting the infection. Then the crime of injury occurs, lawyer Franco Coppi told the Corriere della Sera newspaper. Italian media compared the possible charges to penalties for spreading HIV by deliberately having unprotected sex, a charge which led to one man being jailed for 24 years in one case in Rome in 2017. It came as Italy shut down all shops except for pharmacies and food stores as part of the country's unprecedented nationwide lockdown. Prime Minister Guiseppe Conte announced the latest wave of restrictions in a primetime address with bars, pubs and restaurants shut down for two weeks. Thank you to all Italians who make sacrifices. We are proving to be a great nation, Conte said in his nine-minute address to the nation. The quarantine is in place until at least April. Top health official Walter Ricciardi told Italian TV that his countrymen should prepare for a long war against the virus. Italian cities are becoming unrecognisable with the famous piazzas in Rome, Florence and Venice empty, except for sanitation workers spraying them with disinfectant. This is another benefit for the cult in terms of their agenda of the lockdowns is culture being erased. A lot of cultural stuff, for example, like piazzas or Italian ice cream vendors and other small, small operations in other countries that are related to culture and are great for tourism, are going to be impacted by the lockdowns. And this is all part of erasing culture to replace it with a monoculture, which I explain in last week's episode in this segment about migration, because that's happening ultimately for the same reason. Conte tightened restrictions even further, with bars and restaurants ordered to close after previously being told they could stay open if they ensured a three-foot distance between guests. All shops will be closed except for basic necessities, such as pharmacies and food stores, said Conte. Bars, pubs, restaurants, hairdressers and canteen services will close. Home delivery is allowed. There was no need to rush to buy groceries, he said, after Italians responded to the announcement of the lockdown by cramming into supermarkets to stock up. Conte's announcement came hours after his government promised to spend up to 25 billion euros, 22 billion pounds, to fight a disease that has put hospitals and the economy under intense strain. The size of Rome's rescue was the same as the one the European Union announced for the entire 27-nation bloc. Italy's economy minister said half the money would be used immediately and the other half stowed away and tapped should the health crisis spiral out of control. Part of the government's cash injection is meant to help small businesses that are suffering the brunt of an implosion in the number of tourists who visit Italy's art-filled churches and beautiful hills. The government also put more meat on the bones of an emerging plan to let families temporarily suspend some mortgage and social tax payments. Galtieri said partial state guarantees were being discussed to help Italy's creaking bank survive a resulting cash crunch. The government responded to the coronavirus outbreak in February by quarantining 50,000 people in 11 villages that were worst affected in the north. That was followed with social distancing measures in Milan's Lombardy region and surrounding areas in which more than 15 million live and 40% of the nation's economic activity occurs. The Lombardy measures were extended to all Italy. Tourists have essentially disappeared and the Vatican St. Peter's Square is closed to all but those who want to enter the Basilica to pray under its soaring dome overlooking Rome. Pope Francis held an audience in his private library with his clerical translators sitting apart while St. Peter's Square stood empty with disappointed worshippers forced to watch his audience on a live stream. 
Some shoppers and shopkeepers have also taken the three-foot safety distance to heart by carrying rulers and marking out lines where people should stand. The central streets of Rome remain deserted, and buses that are usually crammed with commuters run almost empty. I can't even recognise Rome now, 30-year-old Muscoviti Ekaterina said while posing alone for a photo by the usually bustling Trevi Fountain in the heart of Rome. A couple of things to point out there. A, this erasing of culture I mentioned, and also where it says about Pope Francis, disappointed worshippers have to watch his audience on a live stream. One of the other effects of the lockdown's benefits for the cult's agenda is erasing human-human interaction and replacing it with human-technology interaction, which, as I've said for a long time, pretty much since pay-per-view began, I think, that is the plan. Human-machine interaction, human-AI interaction. And I talk about that in episodes 10 and 11 in far more detail, where that is meant to conclude. And in episode 59, part 2.2, otherwise known as All Roads Lead to Israel, part 2. The article continues. Cathedrals posted handwritten notes cancelling mass and cafes apologised to their regulars for having to turn them away. See, that's another point about this virus is it's not just erasing culture, but it's stopping people coming together. That's another benefit for the culture agenda. And divide and rule. Neighbours spying on neighbours and being encouraged to do so by authority. And people... One of the things you're going to see is young people blaming elderly people. We had to do this to protect the old people. We had to do that, lockdown, the economy and everything. Young people are going to blame more people. And that is part of the agenda. Because elderly people are, despite what authority will say, a target of the cult. They want rid of old people. And old people were blamed for Brexit. They were blamed for... Old people were blamed for Brexit. We are seeing this. Old people were blamed for Brexit. They're being blamed for not doing enough. And even younger than older people. About climate change, there is an agenda to divide and rule young from old. Now, there are some anomalies when it comes to coronavirus that people on the internet and citizen journalists have pointed out and shared to people, which I'm going to link to in the episode description. The next subject this week is Google. This is in the Daily Mail. Google could share users' location data with the UK government to help it determine whether people are practicing safe social distancing during the coronavirus crisis. What this is, is Google publicising what they're doing anyway. Not necessarily that they've always shared it with the government, but the fact that they are tracking people and keeping data. have been doing that anyway. There was an article the other day about Israel saying they are going to track users' mobile phone data because of coronavirus to keep track on them. And that's not a surprise, for reasons I explain in All Roads Lead to Israel Part 2. Israel has backdoor access to computer systems worldwide, both private and professional, and not just of computers either, phones, anything technological, including the computer systems of intelligence, military agencies, by the way. The cult that controls Israel controls military intelligence, as I talk about in All Roads Lead to Israel Part 1. But this is the article. This is in the Daily Mail. 
Google is considering sharing users' location data with the UK government to help track the movements of citizens during the coronavirus crisis. The tech giant is in discussions about sharing location data gathered from its various apps to help determine whether the public is practicing social distancing. This would work in a similar way to Google Maps, which uses location data on users' mobile phones, track the movement of cars and show when there is heavy traffic in certain locations, reports New Scientist. As the data would be anonymized, it would be unable to show who was guilty of not adhering to the strict measures introduced to prevent the spread of COVID-19. However, the data could help identify where and when people are gathering, which can influence further government measures. We're exploring ways that aggregated, anonymized location information could help in the fight against COVID-19, said Johnny Liu from Google in a statement. One example could be helping health authorities determine the impact of social distancing similar to the way we show popular restaurant times and traffic patterns in Google Maps. He said any partnership with the government would not involve sharing data about any individual's location, movement or contacts. Travel locator app CityMapper is also reportedly aiding efforts to provide anonymised data to the government. We have received requests from the UK government to help and we'll do our best, it said in a statement to New Scientist. We protect the privacy of our users and are sharing aggregated analysis. The app provides a mobility index that compares the movements of cities around the world based on app usage data. As of yesterday, Barcelona, Madrid and Paris, all of which have stricter lockdown measures than the UK, were moving at a rate of 4%. Milan in Italy's Lombardy region, the worst affected region in Italy with more than 3,000 deaths from COVID-19, was moving at just 3%. As a comparison, London was moving at a rate of 23% as of Sunday as crowds flouted official advice by flocking to parts to enjoy the sunshine. John Crowcroft, the creator of Fluphone, an app designed to track the flu in the UK, said it is possible to use anonymised data to track COVID-19. Smartphones regularly share their location to wireless carriers and tech companies who share it, almost certainly to military intelligence, especially in Silicon Valley, which is owned by military intelligence, which is owned by the cult which controls Israel. Smartphones regularly share their location to wireless carriers and tech companies where permission has been granted by the user, such as to hell rise or find a cafe. The health protection agencies could use it to populate anonymized map data, which might help reduce transmission, Crowcroft told Wired. This would allow researchers to find out how long the virus survives on a surface, what fraction of the population are asymptomatic carriers, and where to target critical medical resources. It was reported last week that the US government is talking to both Google and Facebook on similar measures. US citizen data would also be an anonymous and could allow officials to see whether groups of people are keeping enough distance from each other. Data collected on users' locations will be used to track patterns in groups rather than monitor any single individual or collect and maintain a database on people's whereabouts, according to a report by the Washington Post. Being able to monitor trends in where smartphone users go as a group, how many people are together in one place and hotspots for large gatherings could be a powerful tool for tracking the virus, officials say. Facebook confirmed it was speaking to the US government on a range of coronavirus issues and the government was interested in understanding people's movements. Is it? I'd never thought. I'd never thought it would be. That's a surprise. In the past, the social media giant has provided researchers with anonymous statistics on users' locations. It said this could help officials predict the next hotspots or decide where to allocate overstretched health resources. An open letter written by a number of tech executives and doctors to Apple and Google called for a similar technology to be built into iPhone and Android devices by default. If such a feature could be built before SARS-CoV-2 is ubiquitous, it could prevent many people from being exposed the letter suggests. In the longer term, such infrastructure could allow future disease epidemics to be more reliably contained and make large-scale contact tracing of the sort that is worked in China and South Korea feasible everywhere. Using location data on smartphones to track COVID-19 is not new. China published an app that lets people scan QR codes to find if they've been in close contact with someone infected with the virus, while Israel is thought to be doing something similar by using resident cell phone data to track the disease. A couple of things there. One, okay, we're being spied on. We know that. Why is it important? This reason. These measures being brought in now to protect us from coronavirus. 
some of them will be rolled back. China, probably none of them will be, but in Britain and America and other places, yes, some of them will be rolled back after the pandemic is over. But they'll find reasons to keep some of them still there in society. So for that reason, people are going back into a changed world instead of normal life as they know it before the pandemic. And all to the benefit of the cult and the cult's agenda, which I've laid out since pay-per-view began in February 2018. And China will be starting already, but one thing you'll see is China being praised for the way they've dealt with the virus, when what it really is is introducing the agenda under the guise of protection. The more praise and support China get for doing that, the easier it is to roll out that agenda in the West, which has to pay some lip service to democracy and a free, open society at least lip service. The model for China today, and that dictatorial totalitarian tyranny, is the model for the West tomorrow. And that tomorrow can come very, very soon, if we allow it to. Just on the subject of technology, there's an article on Rice University website, muse.rice.edu, and it's headed Quantum Dot Tattoos Hold a Vaccination Record. Bill Gates is involved with this, the idea of a quantum tattoo, and he's one of a group of people before the pandemic who were part of something called Event 201, and they chose a simulation of a situation which was a simulation run by the bill and melinda gates foundation the world economic forum which meets at davos every year the less than one percent elite event to decide economic policy and to discuss economic policies that benefit the elite and johns hopkins university this is six weeks before the virus was known about and it was a simulation of what would happen if a pandemic broke out and they chose coronavirus. And it's worth looking at what was predicted would happen against what has happened and what could happen as a result of coronavirus. Anyway, this article says it's headed quantum dot tattoos hold vaccination record. Rice bioengineer reveals dissolving microneedles that also embed fluorescent medical info. Keeping track of a child's shots could be so much easier with technology invented by a new Rice University professor and his colleagues. Kevin McHugh, an assistant professor of bioengineering at Rice since this summer, and a team at his previous institution, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, report in a cover story in Science Translational Medicine on their development of quantum dot tags that fluoresce with information after they're injected as part of a vaccination. The tags are incorporated in only some of the array of sugar-based micro-needles on a patch. When the needles dissolve in about two minutes, they deliver the vaccine and leave the pattern of tags just under the skin where they become something like a barcode tattoo. Instead of ink, this highly specific medical record consists of copper-based quantum dots embedded in biocompatible micron-scale capsules. They're near-infrared dyes, invisible, but the pattern they set can be read and interpreted by a customized smartphone. The two-year project is aimed at the one and a half million preventable deaths that result from a lack of vaccine nations primarily in developing nations the bill and melinda gates foundation came to us and said hey we have a real problem knowing who's vaccinated 
Sediment Cube, who was recruited to join Rice with funding from the Cancer Prevention and Research Institute of Texas. They said, we go on vaccination campaigns where people get into Hummers, drive to a rural village, set up a tent and start immunising people, but they don't always know who's been immunised before and what vaccines are still needed. Parents often don't know their children's vaccination histories, McHugh said, so our idea was to put the record on the person. He said, this way later on people can scan over the area to see what vaccines have been administered and give only the ones still needed. There are two sides to this, he said. First is that you don't administer unnecessary vaccines, which has a cost, but even bigger, you don't leave people under immunised at risk of getting an infectious disease. McHugh said the team worked with a bioethicist to be sure the patient's data remains protected. Does anyone believe that's actually going to happen? She said, we're on solid ethical ground as long as people can opt out, like getting the patch with only the vaccine. Also, the patch with quantum dots only contains information about the vaccines received. It doesn't tell you anything else about the person. The square centimetre patches hold up to 16 tiny needles. They don't go very deep, which makes them theoretically painless and a lot easier for kids. McHugh said, they're like putting on a bandage. Because the one and a half millimetre needles disintegrate in the skin no biohazardous sharps remain for disposal he said testing in model skin in strong light show the four nanometer dots should be readable for at least five years but q plans to continue his work on the technology at rice there are so many aspects to this particular project that we need my nanotechnologists bacteriologists chemists and computer scientists he said so this is certainly something i'm thinking about for my lab here nanotechnology is absolutely fundamental for the technology agenda which i talk about in episodes 10 and 11 Bill Gates is funding virtually every pillar of the cult's agenda. So when he's involved in something, it needs to be seriously questioned. And on the subject of insiders, this is a great article on globalresearch.ca, which do some really good articles. I've seen many great articles from them over the years. Why did hundreds of CEOs resign just before the world started going absolutely crazy? In the months prior to the most ferocious stock market crash in history and the eruption of the biggest public health crisis of our generation, we witnessed the biggest exodus of corporate CEOs we have ever seen. And as you will see below, corporate insiders also sold off billions of dollars worth of shares in their own companies just before the stock market imploded. In life, timing can be everything, and sometimes people simply get lucky. But it does seem odd that so many among the corporate elite would be so exceedingly lucky all at the same time. In this article, I'm not claiming to know the motivations of any of these individuals, but I am pointing out certain patterns that I believe are worth investigating. One financial publication is using the phrase, the great CEO exodus, fortune.com is the publication, to describe the phenomenon that we have been witnessing. It all started last year when chief executives started resigning in numbers unlike anything that we have ever seen before. The following was published by NBC News last November. Chief executives are leaving in record numbers this year, with more than 1,332 stepping aside in the period from January through the end of October, according to a new data released on Wednesday. While it's not unusual to see CEOs fleeing in the middle of a recession, it is noteworthy to see such a rash of executive exits amid robust corporate earnings and record stock market highs. Last month, 172 chief executives left their jobs, according to an executive placement firm at Challenger Gray and Christmas. It's the highest monthly number on record in the high and the year-to-date total outpaces even the weight of the executive exits during the financial crisis. The article continues. By the end of the year, an all-time record high, 1,480 CEOs had left their posts, Fortune magazine. But to most people, it seemed like the good times were still rolling in the end of 2019. Corporate profits were rising, and the stock market was setting record high after record high. Yes, there were lots of signs that the global economy was really slowing down, but most experts were not forecasting an imminent recession. So why did so many chief executives suddenly decide that it was time to move on? The following are just a few of the big-name CEOs that chose to step down in 2019. 
these names are taken from Business Insider, and they are United Airlines, Oscar Munoz, Alphabet, connected to Google, basically a, an offshoot of Google, Larry Page in Google, Alphabet, Gap, Artpec, McDonald's, Steve Easterbrook, Wells Fargo, Tim Sloan, Under Armour, Kevin Plank, PG&E, Geisha Williams, Kraft Heinz, Bernardo Hees, HP, Dion Weisler, Bed Bath & Beyond, Stephen Tamaris, Warner Brothers, Kevin Sujihara, Best Buy, Hubert Jolly, New York Post, Jesse Angelo, Colgate Palmolive, Ian Cook, MetLife, Stephen Kandarian, eBay, Devin Weenig, Nike, Mark Parker. Of course, the mass exodus of chief executives did not end there. In fact, a whopping 219 CEO stepped down during the month of January 2020 alone. By then, it was starting to become clear that the coronavirus that was ripping through China could potentially become a major global pandemic. And I certainly can understand why many among the corporate elite would choose to abandon ship at that moment. Some of these CEOs have made absolutely absurd salaries for many years and it is much easier to take the money and run than it is to stick around and steer a major corporation through the most difficult global crisis that any of us have ever experienced. The following are just a few of the well-known CEOs that have resigned so far in 2020. Again, taken from Business Insider. Bob Iger, CEO of Disney. Ginny Romati, IBM. IBM seems to be a cult-owned company which has a major base in Israel. Harley Davidson, CEO Matt Levitich. T-Mobile, John Legere, LinkedIn, Jeff Weiner, Weiner, Mastercard, AJ Banger, Keith Block, co-CEO of Salesforce, Tijane Tam, CEO of Credit Suisse, Hulu, Randy Freer. It is important for me to say that I do not have any special insight into the personal motivations of any of these individuals and every situation is different, but I do think that it is quite strange that we have seen such an unprecedented corporate exodus at such a critical moment in our history. Meanwhile, top corporate executives were dumping billions of dollars worth of shares in their own company just before the market completely cratered. The following comes from the Wall Street Journal. Top executives at US traded companies sold a total of roughly $9.2 billion in shares of their own companies between the start of February and the end of last week of Wall Street Journal analysis shows. The selling saved the executives, including many in the financial industry, potential losses totaling $1.9 billion according to the analysis, as the S&P 500 stock index plunged about 30% from its peak on February 19th through the close of trading March 20th. In the stock market, you only make money if you get out in time, and many among the corporate elite seem to have impeccable timing. Perhaps they just got really lucky, or perhaps they were reading my articles and understood that COVID-19 was going to cause a global economy to shut down. In any event, things worked out really well for those that were able to dump their stocks before it was too late. Or, their insiders of the global network, especially elite Zionism, which is owned by the cult, which owns the financial system globally, the economy, banking, stock market. So if you're an insider, just like George Soros, some people might think he's a financial genius. Well, it's easy to be a financial genius if you know when the stock market's going up and down because you represent the network that's going to, do, that's going to make that happen. The article continues. And it turns out that several members of Congress were also selling stocks just before the market went nuts. Senator Dianne Feinstein, elite Zionist of California, and three of her Senate colleagues reported selling off stocks worth millions of dollars in the days before the coronavirus outbreak crashed the market, according to reports. The data is listed on a U.S. Senate website containing financial disclosures from Senate members. The article continues. Of course, most ordinary Americans were not so lucky and the financial losses for the country as a whole have been absolutely staggering. Not that these characters care. The good news is that there was a tremendous rally on Wall Street on Tuesday and that will provide some temporary relief for investors. But the number of confirmed coronavirus cases continues to escalate at an exponential rate all over the globe. And this crisis appears to be a long way from over. Why do they keep escalating? Not least for the reasons I already explained. Talking of insiders, Jeff Bezos, Amazon owner, signed a $600 million cloud computing contract with the CIA. This is in The Guardian. 
Jeff Bezos sold $3.4 billion of Amazon stock just before COVID-19 collapse. Millions of people across the world have lost their jobs and trillions of dollars have been wiped off the value of stock markets, but not everyone has lost out. Jeff Bezos, the world's wealthiest person, is $5.5 billion, £4.3 billion, richer today than he was at the start of the year. His paper fortune, held mostly in Amazon shares, rose by $3.9 billion on Thursday alone to $120 billion, enough to buy 188,000 standard gold bars, even taking into account the soaring price of gold. Bezos 56 benefited this week from the best three-day stock market rally since 1933, helping Amazon's share price to recover almost all of its losses this month to trade at about $1,920, so that was slightly down on their peak of $2,170 in February. Bezos owns about 12% of Amazon's shares. He saved himself from larger losses by selling a big chunk of his Amazon shares in February before the worldwide scale of the coronavirus crisis was fully acknowledged and before the stock market collapsed. Regulatory filings showed that Bezos sold $3.4 billion worth of Amazon shares in the first week of February, just before the stock price peaked. There was no suggestion that Bezos acted improperly by selling the shares or that he was acting on non-public information about the impact of the pandemic, but it's pretty obvious he was but his timing was near perfect. The share sales, which represented about 3% of his total holding, were much greater than Bezos had made in previous months. The stock sold was as much as he had sold in the previous 12 months, according to analysis by the Wall Street Journal. Other US executives that have been either lucky or smart by selling large chunks of their shareholdings in February include Larry Fink, the chief executive of fund manager BlackRock, a notorious organization who saved potential losses of $9 million, and Lance Ugla, CEO of data firm IHS Market, who sold four. $7 million of shares on 19th of February that would have dropped to $19 million if he had held on to them. In total, US executives sold about $9.2 billion in shares of the companies they run in the five weeks before the start of the stock market run. Selling before the 30% collapse in the market saved them from paper losses of $1.9 billion. If you run a major global corporation like Amazon, you find that money is always there to keep you going. Even when you are going through a period financially that would with a regular company mean that they can no longer exist. Money's always there to support you. So you can in the meantime, and this is what Amazon's done, destroy the competition who have to make a profit to survive so that you can become the all-encompassing global corporation that Amazon is so close to becoming. So that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the context and connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.